Good morning. Uh, I have uh, two quick announcements. First of all, I want to remind you, next week we're going to be taking a Christmas offering for our missionaries. So I want you to be thinking about that now and preparing yourselves for that now. Uh, and so again, we'll be taking that next week. So please do that. And then secondly, um, whether this is your first time here or your 21st time or your 1,000th and first time, there's a little thing on the side of your bulletin that we call the zip strip. And you help us when you fill that out. So we would like you to fill that out, not just once in a while, but every single week. Everybody, every single week. And that's helpful to us. That's a way you can communicate with us. If you have some prayer requests or so there's some things going on in your life that you would like us to know about. Um, we, we pay attention to these. Every week we're looking at these. We pray through the items here. Uh, the leaders of the church do. And... Um, it's also a way that if, if we don't see one of these from you in, say, two or three or four weeks, and we can't really remember seeing you in church, then we're going to call you, and we're going to call your friends. So if you don't want us to heckle you, at least do it for that reason. And so I want to encourage you to do that for us. And um, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into um, our passage this morning. So please uh, bow in prayer with me. My father, this morning it was hard for me to, uh, to get out of bed. It was a little darker and a little colder and I just wanted to stay put. And um, I'm reminded today uh, that even while we needed to sleep and um, replenish ourselves and be refreshed, God, that you did not need to. You never sleep. You never tire. You don't grow weary. You don't need to rest. You don't need to be refreshed. Uh, there is never a moment when you are not actively and attentively superintending the affairs of this world and this life. We're thankful that we have a God who is in control. And even when we look at the world and see things that are discouraging or um, where it seems like chaos or darkness reigns, we know that our God reigns supreme. We know there is nothing that happens, Lord, that you have not foreseen and permitted. And we know, Lord, that you are, you are bringing this world to a point of reconciliation. You are drawing people to yourself and saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. And there will be a day when you set everything right. And we look forward to that day because we know that we have been made right, those who have trusted in Christ, in our righteousness, which is not of our own. It is not a self-righteousness, but it is by your grace that our sin was poured into Jesus and killed at the cross, and his righteousness transferred to us so that we are rightfully your sons and daughters. So we're able to look forward to a day where sin is judged and where all things are made right because you have spared us. So God, may your grace and your mercy in our lives um, just govern us each moment of our life, and especially now as we come to your word. Help us to learn, help us to be taught again by the word and by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 5, verses 5 through 15. And... Um, this is going to be sort of our, our last message in this series that we've been in, A Culture of Generosity. 
And uh, as I indicated at the very beginning of this, this series is really foundational or in response to a season of growth that we find ourselves in uh, as a church. And just to give you even some numbers or some metrics, we have been experiencing uh, a 45% growth rate in attendance over the last 40 or over the last four years. Uh, so four years ago in 2010, our average attendance was 420 people and and as of right now, it's about 612 on a weekend. And praise God for that. That's a very encouraging thing. There's a lot of churches that are holding even or maybe in decline. And that's not what we're experiencing here. And so we praise God for that. In fact, last week I was here. I was able to drop my kids off for Awana and then pick them up. Because we had switched some things around with the college group that we're leading. And, and uh, I, how many of you are, have been in here for Awana? Either serving or dropping your kids off. Can I... Put them, put them up. Big, you know what I'm talking about then. There was 130 some kids running around here and parents. And it was like the walls were just going to bust off of this place. And it smelled like the kids were having a great time. You know? <laughs> I don't know about the leaders. But it was just cool. I mean they've got multiple Awana Circle things going here. And, and uh, just doing the best they can to keep everything uh, ordered. It is a beautiful chaos if I could call it that. I think that's what Janine and I called it. A beautiful chaos. And uh, so one of the things that we're doing here just to respond to this steady growth and to allow us to continue to reach into the mission field of Fairbanks is that we're beginning a capital campaign, a fundraising campaign uh, to raise money for a new facility. And you've seen a picture of it before and I just want to be completely upfront with all of you about this. You're going to be hearing more and more about this, but this is what we envision uh, for the church into the future here. Uh, you can see on that far left-hand side, that big section that doesn't exist yet. That's what we're trusting God for. That's a new auditorium, and below it is a, a pretty fantastic CE space uh, for our kids, which is also a growing ministry. Um, both our Awana and children's ministry have more than doubled in the last four years. Um, so it's just remarkable what God is doing, and we praise God for that. But we need to not cross our arms and be content and say, well, we're done. There's still a mission field here in Fairbanks. There are people who need to hear the gospel. There are people who need to be discipled. And we want to be willing to do that. And so that's part of this campaign that's coming up. And as you know, I've already shared the number with you. The estimated cost for this facility is $5 million, which is a sobering number. And uh, it's not a number I find myself saying very often. But, um, but that's what, that's what we're, our best estimates are telling us. And that is going to require generous and sacrificial giving from everybody, from every single person. And, uh, and we're also going to be reaching out to our Bethel alumni, folks that have come through the church over the years and moved on, but still have a place in their heart of love and affection for this church. And even after all of that and all of the uh, addition that we can do there, I, I still believe God is going to have to magnify our fish and loaves, so to speak here. Um, we're going to need some God math, but... So in preparation for all of this, what we're doing is we're going back to the scriptures and we want to look at, well, what does the Bible have to say about money, about resources, about how we handle our possessions and our giving? And one of the predominant themes that comes through the scriptures is that the church is to be a place that is marked by generosity. We are to be a culture, the church is to be a culture of generosity, whether there's a giving campaign on or not, okay? There is to be, we are to be a culture 
of generosity. And so we've looked at this and I want to remind you of where we've been because this will be the last one to kind of wrap up this series here. First of all, we looked at what Jesus had to say in the Sermon on the Mount. And we identified sort of the idea that generosity affects our heart for God. That's what Jesus taught us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not just laying out a whole bunch of lists of to-dos. But in fact, what he's teaching us is that God wants our heart, first and foremost. Principally, God wants our heart. He doesn't want us just doing outward acts of performance and obedience. He wants our obedience, but he wants it driven by our heart. And as he gets real practical and starts talking about some things that we can do to cultivate a heart of affection for God, one of the things he indicates is that we need to be a people who are generous. We need to be those who don't lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where those things don't happen. And he tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be. In other words, if you want to cultivate a heart of affection for the Lord, then make sure you're investing your treasure in the things of the Lord. And that's what Jesus tells us. And then we looked at uh, the idea that generosity is the command of God, not just the suggestion. But in 1 Timothy, we find the Apostle Paul coaching his, uh, his young protege, Timothy, and what, he, and what Timothy is to teach the church there in Ephesus. And he tells them, command those who are rich in this present world to be generous and to be willing to share. And that in so doing, they will store up for themselves treasures in heaven. And so he even unpacks what's, what this looks like. And it's not to be just a suggestion or an idea or a consideration. But Paul amazingly tells Timothy, command them. They're to be generous. And then a couple weeks ago, we looked at Luke 16. And we looked at the idea that generosity is entrepreneurial for the kingdom of God. In the same way, it was a, it's a very provocative parable as we looked at. There's a lot of debate about it. But what's very clear in it is Jesus interprets it for us. He tells us that everybody in this world is shrewd and almost to the point of, um, what's the word? Crooked, I guess. Uh, in trying to make a material profit. And he says that we should be as shrewd to make a profit for the kingdom of God as the world is to make a material profit. And so we need to be uh, generous and always looking to make a profit for the kingdom of God. And then finally, what we're looking at today and the point that hopefully will come through loud and clear as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is that generosity, as we've been talking about it, is going to require a plan. It's not just going to happen. It won't be incidental. We're going to have to plan for generosity. Uh, this past week, I, or in the past two weeks, I got three different invitations to uh, contribute to some kind of a fundraiser. Two of them were local ministries. One was um, sort of a humanitarian thing. And if I was paying really close attention, I probably got a lot more than that. And you probably did too. Um, and it can be difficult when we get these things to sort of determine, well, is this something I want to contribute to or not? Is this something I should contribute to or not? We have limited resources and most of them are good opportunities, but it's clear that need alone does not necessarily make something rise to the level of worthiness. Uh, I can remember my first trip to Ethiopia back in 2006. And one of the most difficult things was seeing the poverty there and being confronted with people who had a very real need and who were in a desperate way. And you knew that even if you gave one burr to this woman with this child, that then five more were on you. And then if you gave to those five more, and, and you realized, I can't just... 
given every situation and nor can I not give to any situation. So how am I going to make my decisions here? And I got some good advice, which was to just come up with a plan, something like, well, maybe give to every fifth person or give to every person with a child or whatever. You have to have a plan so you're not just completely overwhelmed. And not only are we inundated with sort of need and, and these kinds of opportunities, but you and I are inundated just with the communication of the commercial world around us, right? Buy this product. Your life will be better if you have this. Your neighbor has this. You should have it too. Take this trip. Replace this outdated thing. You'll be happier if. And so we're bombarded with requests for uh, our resources and some of those are good and some of those are not and just like a family has to have a budget and a plan so that they will spend appropriately so we are going to have to have a plan and a budget for our generosity it needs to be intentional it needs to be decided uh, as the old adage goes if you fail to plan you're planning to fail right so we have to have a plan if we're going to practice the biblical value of generosity, it requires a plan. And then we will have to order our lives around that plan. Most of us are not going to find ourselves at the end of the month with a huge pile of discretionary money that we didn't know what to do with. That Maybe we could contribute here or there. And I would say even if that is the case, that's not really what God intends for us. He wants our first fruits. He wants to be first and foremost. He wants our generosity to be decided in advance and our life to be managed around that. He's looking for a prior commitment. Let's talk about the context of 2 Corinthians since we haven't been there before. This is the last of, uh, of four letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. There was one that preceded 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's referenced in 1 Corinthians 5.9. There also was a letter in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians known as the severe letter, which we don't have today. And maybe that's for the best because it sounds like it would make for some scathing sermons, you know, if that were in our scriptures. Um, and so this really, what we call 2 Corinthians, is really probably the fourth letter of, uh, that Paul wrote to this particular church. And throughout these letters, he has continuously confronted them on several things. And one of those is immorality. And uh, there's been some tension between the Apostle Paul and this church for a while because of this level of confrontation that he has uh, had to bring against them. In fact, it's to the point that the first seven chapters of this book of 2 Corinthians are actually devoted to Paul defending his ministry, defending his rights as an apostle because they had been challenged since he had uh, questioned them so much. And the text that we're looking at this morning in chapter 9, what we find is Paul preparing the, the Corinthian church for a collection that he is taking up for the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, he's already announced this collection to them in 1 Corinthians, and then now he's basically coming back to the issue, reminding them, get your affairs in order because we're going to be receiving it. And so that's kind of the, that's the context here. And as he appeals to the Corinthians to participate in this offering, and as he's preparing them for that, he lays out some principles that are excellent, that we need to hear from, that teach us about how we make plans for giving today as well. So look with me, all of that by way of introduction, 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 6. And Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that, might be good to underline that, so that. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for, for you, their hearts will go out to you because of, their surpassing, because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Well, once again, this is, this is sort of the driving principle of this passage. Be generous because you want to reap a harvest. Now, many times this passage is taken out of context. In fact, I have an old Bible that I was given, uh, I think I was about nine at the time. I was given by a friend. And I used it through my childhood years of reading the scriptures. And so it's got all these good underlinings and highlights and different things. And one of the things that I did, even as a young boy, when I, when I read something and the Lord really spoke to me through it or impressed it on my heart, I would put a date next to it. And I would put where I was when I heard that. And this particular passage here, I have a little mark next to it that says, SEMP 1993 which was actually an evangelism conference that I went to uh, where they taught kids apologetics and taught us how to go out and do street witnessing. And they used this verse, which I'm sorry to say is absolutely out of context. So I have it written right there in the margins because what they were telling us was to go out and evangelize widely. Because if you sow a white, you know, sow a, a broad harvest here, then you'll have, or, or sow broadly, then you'll, you'll reap broadly. But it's not, principally talking about evangelism here even though evangelism is good it's all over the scriptures but that's not what's being talked about here what's being talked about here precisely is how we invest financially in the kingdom of God which may include evangelistic efforts but it's primarily about being generous to fund ministry initiatives it's first and foremost about financial generosity it is saying, since our financial gifts impact people's lives and their basic needs, and yes, it spreads the gospel, then let us be generous so that there will be a rich harvest. There is a correlation between how much we sow and how much we reap. So we don't want to be lovers of money. The, the scriptures definitely caution us against that. But the reality is that money is a necessary resource for the care and ministry to others. Money is what funds our missionaries. And I want to tell you, I get to compliment you guys. You guys are an incredibly generous church, especially to our missionaries. Uh, if you didn't know this, Bethel Church commits 15% or greater uh, of, its, of its annual budget directly to missions. And so at present, there's nearly $150,000 that is committed annually to supporting our missionaries, both local and domestic. And on top of that, there's, the, there's an entire other Meet the Needy program, a ministry of this church, which does, doesn't even fall under that category. 
Uh, and on top of that, many of you give to missions privately as well. And so this church is incredibly generous in that way. And we also know that money, if, while it funds our missionaries, it provides relief for needy people. In fact, our Meet the Needy team is in Ethiopia right now. And they're overseeing some of the distribution that we have, uh, we have going there, making sure that it's being handled correctly. Money buys food for the hungry. And it redeems people's time such that people like myself can devote ourselves to ministry and to care and to preaching the gospel, to praying for people and, and providing uh, different kinds of needs as it comes up. Money does the really exciting stuff too, like paying the electric bill mm. and heating the building, which, you know, we're thankful for. And, and you guys do a good job heating the building Sunday you know, morning all by yourselves too. There's a couple hundred 90 degree heaters in here. It really warms it up. Um, and it maintains the building. I mean, who wants to give money to maintain a building? It's got to happen. And so we understand that we have to be generous in what we sow so that we can have a generous harvest. What we sow and what we reap will have a direct correlation. That harvest is proportional. Uh, Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25 says this. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous, uh, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit because that's oftentimes misused. So let's look at some of the principles here. We want to be generous because we want to reap a harvest, which means we're going to need to be disciplined in our giving. Look at verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, this word here in the NIV that's translated decided, if you have a King James or a New American Standard, it's, it's, it's rendered um, purposed, right? Purposed. In other words, this is premeditated. It's planned action. It involves foresight. It's not impulsive. If I could put a colorful description on it, I would say it's giving in the first degree. All right? That's what you would be accused of in the court of law. This was premeditated. You planned it. You acted according to your calculated plan. Uh, and, and having a plan in our giving or this, this uh, discipline or being purposed, this is taught throughout the scriptures as well. We see it actually in Exodus 35. If you want to turn there, Exodus 35, starting with verse 4. We went through this several months ago. We went through the whole book of Exodus. Actually, it's probably been more than a year now. I'd have to check on that. And this is, of course, where they're taking up the collection for the tabernacle. God has rescued Israel from, from bondage, from slavery. He's cared for them. He's provided for them. And now he's giving them the plans for this tabernacle, a way that a sinful people can approach a holy God. And they're excited about this. And they're brought together for the opportunity to give towards this. In verse 4, Moses said to the whole Israelite community, this is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. In other words, he pulled them together. He gave them this option. They were to go and think about this and pray about it and decide in their own hearts. It was a free will offering. Skip down to verse 20. Here we see their response. The whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the tent of meeting for all its service 
and for the sacred garments. And do you remember the result? Do you remember what happened when they came back? I'll remind you. The elders had to come out and hold up their hands and say, Stop! It's too much. The text says they had to be restrained from their giving. Because when they went back and reflected upon the grace of God and what he had delivered them from, how he had cared for them along the way, and how he had been close to them and was drawing them to himself to worship him, making a way that they could, a sinful people could approach a holy God, when they reflected upon that and had the opportunity to give, to construct this thing, their hearts moved them generously such that they had to be restrained. I think that is an amazing, amazing picture. And I, I just got to think, if, if the grace of God in their lives compelled them to such generosity, how much more should the grace of God throughout the history of mankind compel us to generosity? We see another example of this kind of generosity in 1 Corinthians, if you would turn there. 1 Corinthians 16. And I'll kind of explain what's going on here. Again, the way this, this um, collection project took place for the poor in Jerusalem... Paul first came to the Corinthians and he told them about it. And then uh, also the Macedonian churches heard about it and they wanted to give as well, which is what we, we find described here or, or a little bit later. And then he comes back to the Corinthians and sort of uh, reminds them about it. And, and so his first instructions to the Corinthians, he talks about being planned and being disciplined and how they prepare for this offering. 1 Corinthians 16.2, he says, On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. In other words, they will have already disciplined themselves. Their plan of generosity will already have taken place such that they are, that they are ready. And so what we find through these examples is that we're to have a plan, we're to inquire of the Lord, and then we're to follow through in the way that he leads us. Generosity requires a plan. Um, and it's going to require discipline. And then secondly here, we're told that we need to have the right attitude in our giving. Now this, this really gets close to home, right? This is where it starts to hurt a little bit. Having the right attitude. We're told that it's not to be reluctant or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And probably many of you have heard before that the Greek word behind this, behind this cheerful is the same word that we use to get our word hilarious. In other words, God loves a hilarious giver. Well, might be a bit of a stretch, but that's what's behind it. Um, a couple of years ago, I taught through this passage, and, and a woman came up to me after the service. She said she had recently visited a church, and that when they said, okay, we're going to receive the offering now, and the offering plates came out, that the church started hooting and hollering in, in, in celebration. I have yet to see that. <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. But she said that was sort of the spirit they were trying to cultivate there. That they would see it not as a grudging time to give. But as an act of celebration and worship. Interesting. What I thought of when I pictured this cheerful giving here. I have this picture. And I tried to find it for you guys. And I couldn't find it. But it's of my daughter Eleanor. 
This is a few years ago. It was my son's birthday. It was Aiden's birthday. And she had picked out a gift for him. It was a little rubber basketball. And she thought it would be perfect and he would love it. So she wrapped it and put it in a little gift bag. And so we have a picture of the two of them. And Aiden is holding the bag and he's looking inside and he's pulling the paper out. And he's excitedly getting this gift. But the sweet part of the picture is the expression on my daughter's face because she's more cheerful than Aiden is. She's excited to give this thing to her brother with thought and with care and with a cheerful heart. And if I could just capture a picture that is supposed to reflect our heart as we decidedly give our offerings, that's it. Cheerful giving. Cheerful giving. There's lots of great pictures in scripture about this and I'm just going to walk through a few quickly. First of all, we've already looked at Israel and the building of the tabernacle. They were so excited to respond to God's grace in their lives that they gave cheerfully to the point of needing to be restrained. And then there's a picture also of, of David when he had it in his heart. He had purposed in his heart to build the temple for the Lord. And actually God, if you remember, said, actually David, you're not the man. You're a man of bloodshed, but I'm, I'm going to have your son do it. And uh, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but David kind of said, okay, I'll raise the money. <laughs> And so that's what he set himself to do. And we have in 1 Chronicles, if you want to turn there, 1 Chronicles 29, the prayer of David. As he prays over the offering that they have gathered together, which has been purposed for the building of the temple. And in 1 Chronicles 29, starting at verse 12, he says this. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things, and your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. Let me clarify something. David is not saying this used to be ours and now we have released it and now it's yours. He is saying from the beginning it was all yours. It all came from your hand. You get the sense of the humility in his giving. Even the act of giving, he says, who are we to be able to do this? It was yours to begin with. It's always yours. Another picture that came to mind as I was thinking about cheerful giving was actually Zacchaeus. We don't think about Zacchaeus in terms of giving. We tend to think of him about being short, the hero for all of us vertically challenged folks. This is a great story about generosity. We know the story well. Zacchaeus, Jesus was coming to town. Zacchaeus couldn't see him, climbed up in a tree. Jesus comes right over to him and says, I'm coming to your house. A known sinner, tax collector, shrewd man who had ripped off his fellow countrymen. Hated. But Jesus said, I'm coming to have dinner with you. Goes to his house. And an amazing thing happens. I, I don't know how else you can explain it other than to say that it was conversion. He came to faith in Christ. He tells, he tells everybody at the dinner party, including Jesus, I'm giving away half of my possessions to the poor. In a moment, he said, 
half of it, I'm giving away. And then he says, and if I've ripped off anybody, if I've taken from them, I will pay, four, pay back four times as much as I stole. And I love the reaction that Jesus has to this story. I, I cannot picture him saying this without an ear-to-ear grin on his face. He basically says, salvation has come to this house. You know, I mean, I, I think there's almost a, a comical element to it. A man that's ready to give half of his, his possessions to the poor and pay back four times as much as he's ripped off, salvation has come to this house. This man has met with God. And then there's the picture of the Macedonians, which is right before the passage we're looking at in 2 Corinthians 9. It's actually in 2 Corinthians 8, if you want to turn there. And as I said, Paul has already introduced this offering to the Corinthians. And then the Macedonians who are nearby have heard about it. And they say, hey, we want a piece of this action. We would like to contribute to this. Don't leave us out. We're ready to be generous. But look what they say here in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 through 4. In the midst of abundance, in the midst of times of plenty, it doesn't say that. In the midst of of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And I've been thinking about this and I've tried to distill this down to just one A lot of these stories down to one line here. I've been praying over this line and it's a bit hard and a bit challenging, but I want you to hear it. Our giving is a direct reflection of our understanding of God's grace. Our giving is a direct reflection of our understanding of God's grace. We're not supposed to give on the margins or to give on our leftovers or to give impulsively, or to give grudgingly, or to give sparingly. Our giving is to be decidedly generous. A response response to God's generosity and grace in our lives. And we are to give freely and we are to give cheerfully. We are to decide and then we are to manage our life in such a way that our living is on the margin of our giving. We are to be decided in our giving. So that's the stingy point there. That's where we all flinch. But we were given some encouragement in how to do this. Oh, I'm a little behind here. We're told that we can give with confident trust. Verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written... They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. What we're how we're encouraged in this passage is that what we give to the Lord and to his work, he will replenish. Did you hear that? What what we give to the Lord and to his work, he will replenish. 
In other words, God promises to fund our generosity. He doesn't promise to make us prosperous for our own sake. Which is, you've heard me rail about this. I get so frustrated when I hear the prosperity preachers go on and on about this. How how many times did we see God blesses you so that, right? What we learn here is that we are not to be a conduit, or we are to be a conduit. We're not to be a cul-de-sac for God's generosity. It's to flow through us. The blessings that God gives are not to find a resting point in our life. They're to flow through our life, to be rerouted and passed on to others. God does not promise to make us prosperous for our own sake. And he does not promise uh, to bless our foolishness. And he does not promise to underwrite our idolatry. But he does promise to fund our generosity to others. I think this quote by Martin Luther is so accurate. In fact, the first time I read it, I wasn't sure if I agreed with him or not. It took me a little while to sort of wrestle through it. But he says this, But God put fingers on our hands for the money to slide through them. So he can give us more. Whatever person gives away, God will reimburse. I actually think he's right, on the, he's right on the money, to use an unintentional pun. But it's to be continually sliding through. We are conduits. We are rerouting what God has entrusted to us. We're also told here that we're to give in a way that builds the kingdom. Uh, there's this phrase here at the, at the end of verse 11. And through us, your generosity will result. It will result in thanksgiving to God. And I think Paul is basically encouraging the Corinthians here of the worthiness of this offering, of the legitimacy of it. He assures them that it's going to be distributed to those who are in need and that it will have a positive impact in people's lives for the kingdom of God. There's a worthiness to it. And I think that's an important metric for you and I to consider as, as we're confronted with opportunities to give and, and we're challenged to participate in something, we need to ask the question, what is the kingdom return on investment? If I could give you a phrase. What is the kingdom return on investment? We ask about returns on investment when it comes to our uh, retirement accounts or, or anything like that. If we're going to buy a home, we want to know what the likely return on investment is, right? We do this in our lives. Why wouldn't we do this for what matters most? What is the return on the likely return on investment for the kingdom of God? We need to be entrepreneurial, evaluating those initiatives that have the best chance of resulting in praise to God. I believe we should privilege those things which have a kingdom impact above those things which have simply a humanitarian impact. I know that's a complicated issue, but I think that's what we're, what we're learning here. And finally, we learn this, that giving is not just pragmatic for people, but it's praise to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. And what we're told here is that the recipient of our generosity is not just those to whom we would give something, but in a sense, God himself is a recipient of our generosity. It is an act of praise and it facilitates an act of praise. 
Generosity doesn't just have a man-word trajectory. There is a God-word trajectory to it. And I want to bring all of this to a close here. We've, we've been talking about generosity for a number of weeks. And I, uh, hopefully we're all flinching about the right amount. Okay. Um, but I have a generosity challenge for you. Number four. Uh, so the first one we gave you was we talked about generosity affecting the heart. I encourage you to give something away so that our, heart would not, our hearts would not be entangled in the things of this world, but that we would get used to releasing them and growing in our hearts and affection for the Lord. So I challenge you to give something away. That was the, the first generosity challenge. The second one was to give yourself away in acts of service. Following the command of scripture to be generous, to be willing to share, I ask you to share yourself with somebody. Then thirdly, uh, as we looked at the parable of the shrewd manager and sort of the way that he was entrepreneurial, looking to make a material gain and we want to make spiritual gains for the kingdom, I asked you to evaluate your, what I called, spiritual investment portfolio. What does it look like? Where are you investing? And I challenge you to evaluate that. And so the last challenge that I have for you is this. Uh, it's to make a plan. To plan for Generosity. Uh, maybe, maybe many of you do. Uh, maybe some of you have had no have no plan. What you contribute and what you give is completely impulsive. It's on the margins. It's on the leftovers, or it's not at all. If we're going to follow the command of Scripture to be generous, we will have to plan for it. Uh, it will have to be decided and disciplined in advance. Maybe you have had a plan, but you haven't reevaluated it in years. Um, one of the ways that we can, I think, fall short in our giving is that we can just give it casually without thought and without active worship. Maybe you need to reevaluate your plan. I hope you understand throughout the scriptures, the theme that comes through loud and clear is that the church, the people of God, in response to God's grace in our life, should be generous. Generosity affects our hearts it's the command of God. It's entrepreneurial for the kingdom of God and it will require a plan for us. So let's pray. Lord, I am reminded that you did not give on the margins. You did not give without forethought. You did not give casually. You did not give little. You gave much. You gave with great plan and intention your own son, Jesus Christ. You gave sacrificially, more sacrificially than anyone ever has. You gave generously, more generously than anyone ever has. You gave because of your heart for us, though we don't deserve it. You were entrepreneurial. You gave your son because you wanted a return on your investment. A people who love you. A people who could be with you, though they had rebelled against you. God, may we be a people who understand your grace in our lives and be compelled to give accordingly. Lord, if there's anyone here who feels that they have been pressured or manipulated by a person, I ask that you would just remove that feeling. I ask God if there's people here that have felt convicted by your word or by their conscience or by the Holy Spirit that they would absolutely respond. Help us, Lord, to listen to you.
and to do what you want. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.